It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Christopher Waddell is a political journalist. He's also a professor and program director for the Bachelor of Media Production and Design program at Carleton University in Ottawa, where he is also the former director of the School of Journalism and Communication. He joined Carleton in 2001 after working for 10 years with CBC Television News, where he was initially senior program producer for The National, and from 1993 to 2001, the Parliamentary Bureau Chief in Ottawa and executive producer of all national news specials for the network, including federal and provincial elections and election night coverage. And he also holds a Ph.D. in Canadian history from my old school, York University. Mr. Waddell, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, sir. So, listen, you've seen a number of things election-wise over the years. Uh, you've uh, certainly got your, yourself stuck into this, this kind of work, and uh, uh, we just had the French debate last night. Yep, and, and we've now got about a week and a half, maybe about 10 days to go before we vote next uh, Monday I- now. The advanced polls actually open today, so yes. some people are voting as of today. Yes, that's right. I was going to say six candidates Two and a half debates, sort of a final week and a bit before the election on October 21st, and then the, the debate last night. Uh, were you able to catch any of that? Yes, I watched the debate last night. And what was your takeaway from it? Um, I thought it was, a, a, it was a different format than the one on Monday night. Um, I think there was more opportunity for each of the leaders to speak. Um, rather than Monday last night, they had kind of mini debates inside the six. They had mm. three talking at, 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 at various points in time. Uh, and then they brought in journalists to actually ask individual questions to uh, to to uh, to one leader or to at a time. I thought it was an informative evening. It was different than the one than the Tuesday, and uh, but I think it gave the parties and the leaders an opportunity maybe to, to speak a little more detail about their policies. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I was going to say I didn't, I wasn't able to catch the whole thing, but what I did see uh, by the end, I kind of wanted more. I wanted to see more. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think, uh, in fact, I think what we should do is, the idea that we only have one English and one French debate is, I think, a mistake. And I think we should have five debates during, mm-hmm. we should have a debate a week during the election campaign. And and if we had five debates, then, then a couple of things would happen that would be very different than what, what happens now. You might then be able to have uh, a debate about a single issue or two issues, rather than trying to ram four or five issues into a debate. So you'd have more time. Uh, the leaders may not feel as much that they need to talk over each other because they've got more time to make their case. Uh, the, the moderators or whoever is asking the questions may be able to get the leaders to break away from their scripted lines and let them and, and force them to talk more extemporaneously or, in, or engage back and forth. You also have the option, if you've got five debates, say, that you can have different formats. So mm. not every debate needs to be the same. Mm. Um, the BBC in, in England has done, in some cases, a really interesting program where they take the leaders one at a time and put them in front of a studio audience and let people ask each leader questions. So rather than having them all on the stage at once, it's one at a time. Um, and, that can, and the questions can be kind of interesting and can be um, um, kind of blunt on some cases, but it, it again... It gives the audience an opportunity to see how each leader responds to the unexpected. But five debates as well, I think, is also important because, or multiple debates is important because if you've got a series of debates, then you're, you're, for each leader, their performance on any given one, they can have an off night and still figure out that they'll be okay. Mm. Whereas if you, if you put everything into to, uh, one debate, then there's a lot of pressure. And uh, and that's then when they're maybe less willing to actually talk uh, more openly about what they're thinking about policies. Yeah, interesting you say that. And it sounds like it would work, especially with some of the issues that we've had covered or some of them were glossed over or missed in a couple of uh, of these debates, such as climate uh, and also yep. in Indigenous issues, I think was another one that, that seemed to not get uh, the full attention and, and kept getting uh, skewed over to other things. That's right. And I mean, the section is supposed to be about Indigenous issues, but then each leader then takes the opportunity to go off and talk about whatever they want. Whereas if you had a half an hour or maybe an hour, then maybe the, the moderator would then force them to stay on topic, for one thing. Um, at the same time, I think we need to think about whether we need to have leader stewards across the country anymore. Um, they drop in on people's living rooms. They stand in fields with lecterns in front of them uh, and people people carefully chosen to stand behind them and not smile or do anything like that. 
and and it's it's kind of feels like 30 or 40 years ago but 30 or 40 years ago um politicians um would actually go and they'd speak to the general public there used to be uh, rallies at massey hall in toronto or even pierre trudeau talking in maple leaf gardens in 1972 now when leaders travel around they never meet the general public they only meet a small group of people who are who are chosen by the party who are party supporters and then they usually are meeting them in a small room to make it look like there's lots of people there for the television cameras. Whereas I think the, the audience and the and voters would get a lot more from a series of debates where they could watch all of them or they could watch some of them. Mm, yeah, that, that leads into part of uh, what I wanted to ask you about as well, with, with six candidates and how that changed the dynamics of this. Well, obviously, um, if you're going to have six people on the stage, you've got to have some sort of system to ensure that they all get inter- they all get an opportunity to speak. Otherwise, everyone will just talk over each other, and you won't hear anything. What was interesting about the French debate last night, and you may have seen it, is every once in a while they would go to a, a screen which showed you how much time each leader had spent, mm-hmm. and and not surprisingly, Elizabeth May, who I think is probably the weakest in French of the six of them, she didn't have nearly as much time as Mr. Trudeau, who seemed to have the most. Uh, and Mr. Blanchet from the Bloc Québécois was second, and the rest weren't weren't that far behind. But it was an interesting... Um, they did a different format than they did on Monday night, but they were still able to give each leader an opportunity to speak at, fair, at a fair length. Mm. Now, you, you touched on something else about how they, they used to go around at some point and, and used to have uh, meet people. Uh, the focus is so much on the leaders. We don't We don't hear much about local candidates. That's true, and I think part of the issue there is is the decline of the news media, and that we have, um, as as I think everyone knows, news organizations are in trouble. Their advertising revenue has declined quite substantially. It's all going to Google and and uh, and and Facebook largely as the two biggest ones. Online advertising and print advertising for newspapers has has fallen dramatically as well. They don't have as many reporters. They don't have as much space uh, in their in their publications, although they have it online. And if you have fewer reporters, you can't be covering as many things as you would have before. And some of what gets sacrificed is local coverage. And and uh, you're never going to see uh, stories about local M- uh, candidates on a national newscast. But but um, what happens at the local level can be particularly important, um, especially in circumstances like this one, where a lot of people seem to be not that thrilled with any of their choices. Mm. So if you're in a situation like that, maybe you look more towards who do I think is the best person to represent my community and represent my interests. And you don't think so much about the leader and you think more about who your local member of parliament will be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having said that, uh, as you just alluded to, uh, do you think these debates uh, have changed anything in terms of looking at the leaders and and trying to make a choice? Um, We won't know that for a while. I think uh, two things... Two things um, um, complicated. Um, first of all, it will take a while for the public to kind of um, reach any conclusions. I think that um, Thanksgiving weekend might be an interesting time where people are back home, where people are sitting around tables having Thanksgiving dinner. They may be talking about who you're going to vote for, and, and, and we may see people who are undecided maybe making up their mind then or in the last week. But the other thing that seems to have happened in, in, in recent elections, and, and the public opinion research demonstrates that, is that more and more people, in fact, don't make up their mind until very late in, in the day. Some even not making up their mind um, until they actually get into the voting booths and actually decide who they're going to vote for. And that's a change from what's happened in the past and and makes the situation more unpredictable than it used to be because you can do your opinion polling, most of which is pretty good, and, and yet if a whole bunch of people uh, decide at the very last minute that they're going to change their mind or, or all decide to go one way or another, that can make a huge difference. And yeah, a significant difference to the point where we've seen um, some ele- some elections in some ri- constituencies where one candidate will win uh, the votes cast in the advanced polls, but another candidate will win the overall election and will win on election day, right. So, which suggests things happen in the last minute. The other thing that's really important, too, is particularly for the liberals, is what's, how many people actually decide to come out to vote. Because the liberals did very well in 2015 when the turnout... Um, went up from about 61% of eligible voters to 68% of eligible voters. And many of those people that came out were people who were younger and maybe people who hadn't voted that often in the past. The conservative support tends to be very um, 
uh, strong and tends to come out and vote. If you look at the last three federal elections, the conserv- number of people who voted for the Conservatives hasn't gone up, uh, hasn't changed very much. It went up a bit in 2011 from 20, 2008, and it went down a bit in 2015. But in those three elections, we went from, oh, I've got a dog barking in the background, sorry. In those three elections, we went from the Conservatives winning a minority to the Conservatives winning a majority to the Conservatives losing. Their voters are, are, are steady and they're devoted and they come out and vote. So the Liberals, if they want to do well, they need to get people out to vote. And uh, that may involve getting young people out to vote. Okay, now, now you've said that, of course. Uh, what do you think the concern is uh, because of uh, Jagmeet Singh and his performance and uh, his strong mm-hmm. performance in the English debate? Uh, there was some talk about numbers going up for the NDP about splitting that vote uh, for the Liberals. That, that could well happen. Um, we'll see what happens. The Liberals, in, in an ideal world, I think, the Liberals would, would like voters to think that... Um, the Conservatives have a strong chance of winning. Uh, the Liberal, and if the Liberals can persuade Green and NDP voters that um, climate change is an important issue, if they if they don't want the Conservatives to win because the Conservatives have say they'll dismantle the climate change moves that the Liberals have made, um, then then they need to. The Liberals will argue then New Democrat and Green supporters um, should support the Liberals, and that may happen in the last week or so of the campaign. We don't know. But the other side of that, which is equally um, plausible at the moment, is that on is that let's say we all think there's going to be a minority government rather than a majority government, whether it's a, a liberal minority or a conservative minority, and then in that case, maybe if you're an NDP or or Green voter, you think it's important that I vote for my party because I want my party to have as many seats as they can. So they can be in a strong position in a minority government to bargain with whoever has the most number of seats to try to ensure that some of our policies get represented in what the minority government actually does. So you can kind of you can see it either way at the moment, and we're going to have to wait till the twenty first to find out. I think. So with with Jagmeet Singh taking that uh, those those making those comments about he would you know work with a party. Uh, you know, if, uh, if if they were elected in a minority by saying if they supported some of the things from their platform, uh, who do you think he was playing to there? Was he playing to, uh, to you know, to, 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 how is he looking at Is he thinking it's leaning more well, towards what, a, 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 you know, a PC? What he's, or? Done, what he's done in the last couple of days is laid out the five or six things he thinks are most important, which on one level is almost doing what we already know, which is that he doesn't have a chance of forming a government himself. He's not going to be the prime minister. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, But the challenge with doing that is whatever politicians say in the period leading up to election day, they can say, um, these are my terms. They can say, I won't do a deal with this party or I won't do a deal with that party if we're in a minority. Um, all that goes out the window when you sit at about 11 or 12 o'clock on election night and you look at what the actual numbers are. Once you see what the numbers are, how many how many um, members of parliament each party has, what the possible combinations might be in terms of can you put enough different parties together to actually form a government, which would be um, conservative or liberal, as they'd most they're almost certainly going to have the most number of, of seats, um, the two of them. Uh, then 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 anything they say in advance, I think, is really not worth very much. You got this is one way you've got to wait and see what happens, but but. The other thing that, I, that, that plays into this uh, may be interesting as well is what ends up happening with the Bloc Québécois because they seem to be doing fairly well. Um, they could, if they actually do as well as some people think they're doing and they win 15, 20, between 20 and 25 seats, then they become a significant player in a minority situation as well. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about the uh, how the, the Bloc and the People's uh, Party of Canada are going to affect things as well. Well, the block, the block on the one hand, um, obviously, if they win, the Liberals need to win seats in Quebec to, to if they think they're going to form a majority government. The more seats the block wins, the more difficult that it makes it for the Liberals to get a majority. Um, with a, and, and so there's a between those two, that's kind of important. On the other hand, the People's Party, uh, there, there's Mr. Bernier's been in both debates. He's laid out a pretty libertarian point of view for what he thinks um, government should be and government should do. He came very close to winning um, the conservative leadership. He didn't win it, 
But there are libertarians, um, certainly within the Conservative Party and within the people who normally vote Conservative. If some of those decide to vote for Mr. Bernier's party, and we'll have to see once the dust settles on the on the um, debates whether public opinion has changed as, as done by polling, um, if if Mr. Bernier's party, which is between one and two percent at the moment, goes up to four or five percent, um, that will be a problem for the Conservatives because that um, that extra votes come from Conservative supporters. It's not likely any Liberals or New Democrats or Green Party are going to support Mr. Bernier. Uh, that's not it's not a problem for conservatives in Alberta and Saskatchewan because they're going to win traditionally they've won most ridings by 15 20 25 30,000 votes so even if the, Mr. Bernier comes in and takes three or four or five thousand votes away from the conservative candidate there that way won't make much difference but if he comes into Ontario seats and he wins three four five thousand votes um, five or six percentage points that's a big problem for the conservatives as that potentially could take seats that the Conservatives might win and turn them into seats the Conservatives will lose to the Liberals. Um, A bit like what happened in the 1990s when we had the Progressive Conservative Party and the Reform Party, and those two parties split the the, um, Conservative vote, allowing Liberals to win. Now, whether Mr. Bernier gets that far or not, we'll have to wait and see. Mm. Uh, You're listening to uh, Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to... Uh, Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest is Christopher Waddell, a political journalist and a professor and program director uh, for the Bachelor of Media Production and Design program at Carleton University in Ottawa. Um, Chris, uh, how much of an issue, or does it even matter, because I don't think people are talking about it much anymore, the whole blackface issue with Trudeau and, and the fact that he was not at the the, the initial first deba- debate? I, I don't think either of those matter very much. Um, but <clears throat> missing the first debate didn't really um, make much difference. Cause it's, it's these debates this week, that, and the TVR one last week in French, that people are focused on. So the, the first debate, I think, was early enough in the campaign. It was sort of on the starting, almost the starting day of the campaign, that people have kind of forgotten much about that, what mm-hmm. that was about. Um, the blackface incident, um, I think there wasn't a huge response to it, I think in part because... Um, uh, it was 20 years ago. Um, the initial reaction we saw from people on the street tended to be that um, some were embarrassed, some were uh, some thought were offended, some were offended, some thought this was just stupid. Um, but most people seem to think that this was 20 years ago and it wasn't going to change how they voted because they wanted to vote on more important issues. Um, interesting, the polling that was done immediately afterwards by um, by um, Abacus, which is an Ottawa-based polling firm found that about 24% of people, um, only about 24% of people's opinion of Mr. Trudeau went down after after the blackface incident. And two-thirds of that 24% were people who said they were conservative voters. So it, it, um, it, who weren't obviously that much fans of Mr. Trudeau in the first place. So I don't think it played a big role. If, if, if it had been linked, if it had been something that had been linked to something Mr. Trudeau had done recently, mm. rather than 20 years ago, I think it would have been much more problematic, obviously, for a whole bunch of reasons. Mm. Um, but not the least of which is it, it appeared it would contradict a lot of what he says publicly. But um, I think most of us probably don't remember everything we did 20 years ago. And we're probably not necessarily proud of everything we did 20 years ago. And I think most people saw that in that, which I don't think it's going to have an impact on the, on how people decide, not very many people on how they decide to vote. If it does have an impact, though, it may be that um, maybe that some people may say, ah, Mr. Trudeau is just like everyone else. Um, uh, he's not different, and I'm not going to vote. And if it, if it turns people from voters into non-voters, I think that becomes a problem for the Liberals particularly. Now, in Quebec, and as the, the, the French debate, as we said, took place last night, and there was quite a bit of talk about the, the province itself and, and some of the things yeah. that are going on within the province and that they're facing. Um, now, at one point, I, I had a chuckle when, uh, when Trudeau brought up the point about, um, um, you know, the, the federal government stepping in to, to stand up for, for uh, people in provinces, and he used Doug Ford <laughs> in Ontario as right. an example— and uh, immediately, of course, Sheer jumped on that. But uh, I believe it was the block that jumped in and, and sort of uh, took that right away from Sheer. The block, the block on that supports the Liberals in some cases, and that was an issue about 
um, the Ford government removing the uh, French language commissioner, um, mm-hmm. originally canceling a French language university plans, and and generally doing things uh, that that uh, um, downgraded um, government and, and government support for French language services in in Ontario, mm-hmm. and 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 obviously Mr. Blanchet would be concerned about that as well. So yes, he jumped in on it too, and of course, Mr. Trudeau wants to do everything he can to try to link Mr. Shear to Doug Ford because, of course, Doug Ford and the Conservatives in Ontario aren't particularly popular at the moment. What also is interesting in in what we're seeing as well is Doug Ford never got around to releasing what his actual platform was, and the Conservatives are releasing their platform at 4 or 5 o'clock this afternoon, I Mm -hmm. think, which is um, after the last debate. Um, It's not as if they didn't... um, it's not as if the election caught them by surprise. I think they could have released the platform much earlier. And of course, that was one of the things I thought the Liberals might have gone, other parties might have gone harder on last evening, which is um, what Mr. Trudeau has tried to suggest is that Mr. Scheer will adopt similar policies to Mr. Ford, which means cutting programs and cutting spending and doing this and doing that. Although the back and forth with the Ford government, it's hard enough to keep track of what they cut, then uncut and everything else. So, that's tough too, but but um, but obviously by not releasing their platform until the very end, the conservatives are hoping um, to avoid that sort of uh, attack from the other parties. We'll see if they do. Yeah. Now, I'm not. I don't know if you've heard this. I saw something online the other day, and I don't know if this is factual or not. But it, it was a comment about that the that the, the progressive conservatives could al- already be looking at at someone to replace Shear. Have you heard anything about this? Well, this is a story that was in the Globe and Mail yesterday, um, and and there's always, you know, whenever a party doesn't, there's always factions within parties that um, were not happy with maybe who the party selected as a leader and are waiting for something to happen to give them an opportunity to sort of try to promote their candidate. We'll see if that actually happens after the election. Um, the challenge the Conservatives face, and, and it's a tough one for Mr. Scheer, is that um, the policies they have, and particularly their climate change policies, put them offside with all the other parties. So that um, that creates challenges, um, particularly if Mr. Scheer, even if, the cons- even if the Conservatives get the most number of seats but fall short of getting a majority, the question is which of the other parties would work with the Conservatives because the Conservatives' climate change policy is so dramatically different than everyone else's, including the Bloc Québécois. So so to some extent, with their position on climate change, the party and Mr. Scheer may have boxed themselves into a corner where it's difficult for them to win unless they win a majority. And at the moment, with the sort of support they appear to have, that doesn't look likely. Um, and if that happens and they don't get a majority, then some people... If, when you lose an election, some people are always willing to blame the leader, and we'll just have to see what happens. Again, though, some of it would depend on what the actual result is, whether it's a, if the Conservatives lose, is it a Liberal majority, is it a Liberal minority, and, and, and um, you know, what happened, where, and who voted for him. Yeah, I guess I, guess I was interested in... in I was interested in that the timing of that in terms of bringing out you know they might even be looking at a replacement for for Sheer yeah. already and it, you know the election hasn't happened yet and I you know throw, throws doubt into uh, you know the leader himself if you see something like that I, the other thing I was sure. wondering about is you know you, you mentioned uh, the, the PC party and how their their climate uh, program is different than everyone else's. And, and, you know, Elizabeth May w- would continually bring up that point about the, the climate yes. is, is not really, it, it's not really a, a, a it, it involves everyone right across the board. Sure. Everybody, you know, should be yep. concerned about this. And uh, I'm just wondering, because of that, it's different. It puts a different spin on, on where the leaders have to look or, or try to, uh, you know, say if, if they don't support that and, and everyone is concerned about it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, yes. It becomes a. It is an overriding issue. It's it. It's it's the biggest issue um, of all the election issues out there that differentiates the conservatives from everyone else. The conservatives have a very different view about climate and climate change, and uh, than everyone else does, and that makes it more difficult for the other party is to think about working with a conservative government should the conservatives end up in first place. And we'll just have to see. I mean, as I said earlier, you never know until you actually see what the actual numbers are at the end of a, at the end of election night. But, 
but the but the Bloc Québécois certainly in Quebec as part of a cap and trade system on on the carbon emissions with California. Um, climate change is a very important issue in Quebec. The Liberals obviously think it's an important issue. So do the Greens and the Democrats, and uh, and that. Um, that will make it tough for the Conservatives to find um, friends if, in fact, they end up in first place. Now, and if they do, and if they do form the government, um, and yeah. climate is not going to go away, and we're going to see more things outside of political parties, uh, as we're already seeing about uh, some some of the right. stories that are that are already dropping about how uh, how the climate uh, crisis is going to affect Canada and the number and and birds and all and all kinds of things. So. Uh, yep. How how is that going to affect the dynamics of us trying to accomplish anything as a country if there's going to be and there will be uh, this ongoing concern for doing something with the with the climate? I think the most like I think the 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 most cons- difficult issue may be after we after we see the election results is um, one of the possible scenarios on the night of the twenty first of October is that. We have a result that's somewhat similar to what it was back in 1980. And that result had kind of drew a line at the Manitoba border. And so it said east of Manitoba, the Liberals dominated. West of Manitoba, to some degree, and then strongly Saskatchewan and Alberta, um, the Conservatives dominated. And then BC was split kind of amongst everybody. What that's going to do is, and, and climate will be a big element of all that, it's going to lead, I think, to some pretty fractious times regionally because the Alberta and and um, and Saskatchewan governments strongly believe they need to support the oil industry, and they're concerned about the future of the oil industry, and they, and that's um, part of their opposition to climate change. The rest of the country has a different point of view, so it's um, that sort of result on election night. If we get that, it's going to lead to, I think, long-term battles over um, over the role of energy and the role of energy development, and uh, and and climate change and carbon taxes and a whole bunch of issues like that. Okay, uh, Chris. Anything else that we haven't touched on that you feel is important for uh, uh, you know voters and people of Canada to know about this election? You know, as we get into the twenty first of October. There's lots of things we haven't touched on. I mean, we haven't really touched on foreign affairs at all. Okay. Um, in terms of in terms of what um, the various parties want to do, right. but we've been through an awful lot of issues, and and if the parties aren't talking about foreign affairs very much, other than Mr. Shear talking about cutting foreign aid by 25%, mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty good sense that they don't think people, many people make their voting decision on the basis of foreign aid. They're more likely to make it on the basis of, um, of the, perhaps the values and what they think of the leaders, in some cases the policies. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, I think we're also likely to see a situation where a lot of people don't make up their mind until close to the end. And that may make election night unpredictable. The other thing that, that related to that, that that's important is it's starting, not that public opinion polls are always right or are always uh, the only thing to go by, but up until very recently, it looked like there were at least four parties, the Liberals, the Conservatives, the New Democrats, and uh, and the Greens, that had more t- than 10% support each um, um, amongst the public. The Greens now, in some people's opinion polls, are starting to slip down into 8%, that sort of thing. If we end up on election night with all four parties getting at least 10% support of, from the electorate, that creates the possibility of, of three and four-way races in some ridings, so that um, the winning the winning candidate may may even have less than 30% of the vote, which really um, would make it very difficult to predict who's going to win on a riding-by-riding basis, and also will add more questions to really what's the benefit of the the existing voting system, if someone, uh, if the winner takes all and the winner has 28% of the vote. So that's something we're going to have to watch for on election night and how that plays out and if it does play out. Because if it does, if we do have those four parties nationally, each with 10% or more, and then the bloc in Quebec polling at 25% or more, um, some of the results that the opinion polls have suggested we may see may go out the window simply because you then get into weird vote splits on an individual constituency basis that make it really tough to tell who's going to win. Mm. Chris, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. We appreciate your time, and thank you for sharing your thoughts and views. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Hopefully we can catch up maybe after and have a, have a bit of a post-election uh, wrap-up with you, if that's okay. 
Sure, see how much of what I said was right and how much <laughs> okay. was wrong. Of course, then we'll know rather than just be speculating, but thanks very much. You're very welcome. That is Christopher Waddell. He is a political journalist and a professor and program director for the Bachelor of Media Production and Design Program at Carleton University in Ottawa, and he was our guest on the first part of the show today here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. But don't go away. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My next guest is Keith Brooks, and he is the program director at Environmental Defense in Toronto. And he was born in the burbs, as he says, and but he has a passion for the environment that was born in a canoe. Not that he was born in a canoe, <laughs> but <laughs> his passion was born in a canoe paddling around the rivers and lakes of northern Ontario. And uh, Keith uh, I th- has a belief, which I think a lot of people might share, and, 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 and that is that, and it's a tough one to, to kind of, I think, swallow in some cases, and that is the belief that we can't choose between the environment and the economy. We have to have both. And uh, Keith, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So why did you think it was necessary to say that statement in your, your bio about, you know, we, we have to have both. We can't choose between the environment and the economy. Well, I think that there's uh, oftentimes people talk about these things as though it is a choice, as though, you know, in order to save the environment, we must hurt the economy um, or that, you know, the economy necessarily takes things from nature, necessarily harms the environment. Mm. It can't be that way. You know, I mean, I think the some of the labor unions have a good slogan, which is, you know, there's no jobs on a dead planet. So we really we really do need both. And I think, you know, people would suggest that environmentalists are naive and not understanding the economy mm. and, and the sacrifices that w- would be made. But we do understand that. Mm. People do need jobs. We do need an economy. But we also need a, a clean, healthy environment. We need clean water, clean mm-hmm. air. We need a stable climate. And if we don't have those things, our ability to, to live a prosperous and good life is, you know, impossible. So let's, uh, let's get into this, uh, this survey. So I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about this survey. Um, it's a survey of leading national environmental organizations that have released responses from the federal parties on 10 environmental priority questions. So uh, the survey, rep- as I say, represents the collective priorities of the 14 environmental organizations and outlines required actions to address the environmental protection, economic justice, and human rights issues facing Canadians. And this nonpartisan survey of the party's positions on environmental issues was developed to help Canadians make informed voting decisions. So, 10 questions. Um, why did you feel it was important, first of all, uh, to, to have this, this survey done, do you think? Well, we have done this kind of a survey in, in the past as well. But, uh, I mean, this election in particular, as I said earlier, environment and climate change are a top issue. Yeah. And I think there's a good news point, which is that no part, well, pretty much no party is disputing that the environment is a real issue, even that climate change is real. Maybe there's questions by some about what causes it. But for the most part, we accept that it's real and something must be done and governments must take action. But then, you know, differentiating between what the different parties are actually saying, what they're committing to do is difficult, right? There's a lot of nuance, a lot of detail uh, and if someone has to do that legwork, let's say they care about the environment, well, they don't know what they should do about that. Mm. They don't maybe know how mm. they should vote about that. So we tried to make it easy. We tried to do the survey so that people could go to one place, compare what the different parties have said, and make an informed decision for those who care about the environment and who want to vote in favor of the environment. The survey is intended to make that easier. Um, and, and having said that, uh, where can people go to have a look at this survey? Uh, you could go to the websites of most of those organizations, most of the national environmental organizations, but since I work for Environmental Defense, I'll tell yep. you, you could go to environmentaldefense.ca, and it'll pop up right on the homepage there. Great. And so anybody that wants to uh, look further into this in terms of what we're discussing, uh, they can go there, environmentaldefense.ca, and you can have a look at this survey and see what the parties had to say on these 10 questions. Yeah. Um, and so uh, where do we want to start with? you want to start with the first question? Sure. I mean, we you know we talked about climate change uh, al- already, and that that first question is a big one: is to say, you know, will you commit to keeping can keep trying doing Canada's part to keep warming to one point five degrees? Right. Which is what the scientists tell us we have to do. You know, the Paris Agreement ratified in twenty fifteen. Canada's government was there and actually helped push for one point five degrees as the new target. Previously, it had been two degrees, mm. uh, and this 1.5 degrees is quite crucial. The the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 
did a report uh, less than a year ago that looked at the differences between 1.5 degrees of warming and 2 degrees of warming, and they found it's quite a stark difference. If we get to 2 degrees versus 1.5, that means hundreds of millions of more people are in the path of climate change, are threatened by food shortages or flooding or fires and things like that, may be displaced, may have to move to other parts of the world, et cetera, hundreds of millions of people. And you know, they also said at 2 degrees of warming, probably all of the coral in the oceans die. Oh. At 1.5 degrees, only 60% dies. So that means it could come back. Yeah. So it's really stark difference at 1.5. So we want to know, is Canada going to do its part, do its fair share mm-hmm. to keep warming to 1.5 degrees? Yeah, so uh, I guess before we get into these questions again, you've already stated the first one, but I'm just wondering from your, after having done this survey, um, were you surprised by the results that you got? Uh, no, I don't think we are terribly surprised. Um, the good news is we got a response from, from most of the parties uh, to the survey. And there's a lot of consensus in Canada, actually. Like I said, there's a lot of consensus about the fact that climate change is real, that it's a pressing issue, and that more must be done. Even Not even just to say that something must be done, but you know, Canada is actually, for the first time ever, uh, starting to tackle climate change. We have national policies in place that are starting to reduce emissions. Uh, but even the governing party agreed, we must do more. We need to ratchet up our ambition. And that's really good news because that's what the science tells us is true. Right. So going back to the first question, will you immediately legislate a climate plan that will reduce Canada's emissions in line with keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius? Uh, what, what, do you, what, what can you say about that one in terms of responses that you got? Well, the, the good news is that most of the parties uh, agreed that that is what we should be doing. And they said that they would legislate it. And that's important because if we put that target, we know that Canadian governments of all stripes for many years have you know signed climate change treaties, have committed to climate change targets, but then done nothing to meet those targets. This commitment to a new target is, one, to say, we know we need to do more. And two, we're going to put it into law. We're going to say that by law, we're going to do more. And we're going to create, you know, processes and whatnot to make sure that we actually follow through on that. And that's really important because that's what we need. We need not just the commitment, but we need to make it legally binding. So it's really great that most of the parties agreed this is something that we we should do. And they said that they would put it into law. Uh, We're going to hold them to that promise, you know, after the election, if we get, you know, a government. Mm -hmm. If the parties that said they would do that end up forming government. And by the way, folks, uh, if you want to go and check this out, uh, environmentdefense.ca, and have a look at the survey, you can see the results there. We're not going to talk directly about the results uh, here, but people can go and check that out online. But we are going to let you know about the questions that have been asked. And the second question is, will your climate plan clearly and precisely describe programs to reduce emissions from transportation, buildings, and the oil and gas sector? Anything to add to that? Well, it's an important question. I mean, we could commit to a vague target. We could you know, even put it into law, but then not actually say how we're going to reach the target. And we think that's important to say. But I think one of the things about that question that's really important is addressing the oil and gas industry. Mm. Uh, we know this is a subject of a lot of debates, very contentious here in Canada. But the, the oil and gas industry is the largest source of emissions in Canada. It's responsible for more than a quarter of the country's total emissions. Uh, we did a report recently that showed if the and the oil companies have put forward an election platform. They've asked for uh, the government to allow them to increase their emissions by over 100 megatons, which is a lot. In fact, the oil companies would like to produce more emissions than 170 countries actually produce. So that's the elephant in the room here in Canada. Mm. And we wanted to say, are you going to describe, really, what are you going to do about the oil sector? Because uh, it's a tough one for governments to grapple with. But it does need to be addressed. We need to confront the fact that we cannot continue to allow emissions from that one sector to grow, you know, that slice of the pie to grow or shrinking the whole pie. We actually need to confront that. And we need to do it in, in, in a, a fair way, in an equitable way, in a, in a just way to workers and communities and governments even that rely on the income and the jobs and that livelihood that that produces. But we can't turn our backs on the fact that we actually do need to address that. You know, I remember uh, one of the questions put uh, forward uh, in the French debate last night uh, went to Elizabeth May, and it, and it talked about uh, dealing with even if Canada were to hit its emissions, even if it were to, to uh, comply and do all the, these things, but other countries around the planet, you know, didn't choose to do that. 
you know, what would the, how would that affect things or how would that matter if Canada dis- decided to go forward? So it is, again, it, it's one of those questions where uh, it comes back, I guess, somewhat to the to the election, uh, you know, about foreign affairs and, and choosing mm-hmm. the choosing the the the, uh, the 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 countries and and the people that uh, want to uh, get involved and help the planet move forward to to heal. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting one because it is it is. I mean, and China apparently is supposed to be bringing a lot more uh, coal firing uh, plants on on uh, online apparently in the next year or so. Well, I mean, there's always these conflicting stories about China. They're adding things are adding more renewable energy than other, any other country mm-hmm. too, and I think they are bringing in new coal. But uh, a lot of those coal plants are actually more efficient versions of the old, more polluting coal plants. Mm-hmm. I mean, China's got a very serious air pollution problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, environment's a top issue there, yeah. like it is here, sure. and the government is committed to addressing it. I mean, but they're at a different point in their you know developmental yeah. uh, progress, and so it's it's a bit of a different trajectory that they're on. But you know what China does really sure it matters, but what Canada does matters too. It matters a lot. I mean, one, because we're Canadians. Um, but actually, Canada is a top 10 emitter. We are the ninth largest emitter in the world. Um, and on a per capita basis, we are the worst usually yeah. Uh, yeah. because we emit more because, because of the oil and gas industry, really. Right. It's so carbon intensive for our population. And so reducing our emissions matters in a global sense. We are in the top 10. But it also matters in a diplomatic sense, right? I mean, we yeah. meet with other world leaders. We're trying to build a global consensus to mm-hmm. deal with a global issue. If Canada, as a, a relatively you know well, wealthy, uh, developed country, does not want to do its fair share, well, then how how are we going to possibly solve this problem? Absolutely, yeah. Or or yeah, try to get others to to get online. Oh, right. Um, a third question is: Will you ensure that workers and their families thrive during the transition to a low carbon economy by? Extending the task force or just transition to include all fossil fuel industries. Yeah, so that is going to that question that I raised earlier about the oil and gas industry in particular. But I mean, if we're going to transform our economy, it does mean that certain industries, the oil and gas industry in particular, I mean, fossil fuels are the cause of yeah. climate change. Right. That sector does need to be phased out. It needs, and that's why we need to start talking about it now because we need to plan for this transition. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over the course of some decades, but we need to start planning for it so that we can protect the people who are going to be affected by that. A lot of those jobs will die out through attrition, right? I mean, people are going to retire, uh, and we hope that you know th- that kind of rolls over. But people that are that are going to you know need need to find new jobs should be helped with that. Uh, they shouldn't be they shouldn't be bearing the cost of that. And the government created the Just Transition Task Force. Because they committed to phase out coal-fired electricity across the country. And that meant people that worked at coal-fired power plants and people that worked in coal mines were going to lose their jobs. And so they've tried to help people find their way to new jobs and to find employment assistance mm-hmm. and et cetera. Um, and we're saying you should extend that to the oil and gas sector, extend that more broadly, and and probably improve upon it too because the, the Just Transition Task Force uh, and the plans that were created didn't quite get there. But it's an important conversation. It's something the government really needs to address. We need everyone to come with us, and we need to make sure that you know people that are, work in that sector don't unfairly bear the costs of you know the need our need to act on climate change. Right. Uh, so the fourth question is: Will you ensure that fossil fuel projects will not be approved unless they are consistent with limiting emissions in Canada to keep warming again below one point mm-hmm. five degrees Celsius threshold? Uh, kind of touched on that a little bit earlier as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just important. So the government uh, has created a new environmental assessment framework, and they've included a strategic assessment on climate change and a bunch of things uh, to make our environmental laws more robust. And one of the things we've been saying is that, you know, when you when you use those environmental laws to approve or not approve of projects, like the Trans Mountain Pipeline, for example, you, you're going to look at climate change, the imp- and that we know that that project will increase emissions Environment and Climate Change Canada even says so, uh, or LNG projects and, and all these fossil fuel projects. So we know how much they're going to increase emissions. We've got to say, does that fit with our ambition to reduce emissions to 1.5 degrees, that first thing mm-hmm. that you committed to? Mm-hmm. Does it fit? You have to create like what's called a carbon budget, right? You can imagine, imagine that we can emit so much carbon into the atmosphere while still keeping our promise to 1.5 degrees. There's a limited amount, though. So does that project that you said... Should or that you're looking at it, whether you should approve it or not, 
Does it fit within that budget? Can you afford to emit that carbon and still keep to 1.5 degrees? Okay. Uh, The fifth question is, will you champion a connected and representative protected areas network of at least 30% of land, fresh water, and ocean by 2030? Yeah, I mean, really important, right? I mean, it's not just about about climate change, but we need to protect, uh, you know, we need to protect the forests, we need to protect the the oceans, we need to protect the fresh water. You know, Canada has 20% of the world's supply of surface mm. fresh water, mm. and we have the boreal forest, which is one of the largest intact ecosystems in the world. So important that we, and we have the most coastline in the world too. Mm. So important that we protect those things. Uh, you know, we need nature, we need wildlife. Also, the, those protecting those things. They help with climate change, too. Yeah, I remember a comment Trudeau made about planting 2 billion trees, I think yeah. he said. Um, and then I heard another comment somebody said about the, the, that planting that many trees would actually be counterproductive because, I don't know, something about the roots that it would... Do you know anything about this? Does it sound familiar to you I, at all? No, planting trees is a good idea. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've never heard of this, the root thing. I don't know. You know I, I, uh, never, right? We should definitely be planting trees and definitely you know, be doing what we can, not just to protect nature here in Canada, but to restore it to the extent mm. that we can. I mean, you know, if we can be planting trees where they, you know, and restoring waterways and protecting more, that's, that's an, a great ambition to have. Mm. Uh, you know, the other thing that you were talking about here, you mentioned 2030, and, and you, you've addressed this as well when we were talking about the, in the opening, and that is the timeline of, of what's happening. And it seems that, you know, I think in the last few years, we've seen the timeline change quicker and quicker in terms of what, what is being brought forward to us about what is happening with the climate. Yeah, well, that's right. And that's part of that is that 1.5 degree commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is, you know, scientists across the world, right, build a consensus report by reviewing all of the studies that are out there. And they said the difference between 1.5 and 2 is quite stark, as I said earlier. And they said if we want to keep to 1.5, we have to be very aggressive in cutting our emissions. And we essentially have to reduce emissions by half uh, by 2030. And that's why people are saying, you know, we have 11 years to solve this problem because we actually need to be working aggressively and and by 2030 which is only 11 years away yeah. we need to have reduced emissions by half and we basically need to be striving to get to zero by yeah. 2050 right and and just want to let everyone know that you're listening to moment of truth on element fm in ottawa and toronto i'm your host david moses my guest is keith brook and he is the uh, brooks rather he is the program director at environmental defense in toronto and uh, we are dis- discussing this survey that they did uh, with uh, some of the, the leading environ- national environmental organizations uh, by going to the federal parties and asking them about these these 10 sort of important environmental questions. And uh, we've gotten about halfway through. We're on question six. And by the way, if you want to know more about what we're talking about and see the results of these things, you can go to environmentaldefense.ca, and that survey is right there on their site. You can have a look at that, see the parties, see what... Uh, the questions are in more detail and see what their answers say. And, of course, the great the detailing of these answers that the parties came back with in some cases. Yeah. There's other parties that uh, did not have uh, as great a detail, let's put it that way. Um, so next question is, will you ensure Canada's federally protected lands, fresh water and oceans, are managed to the highest international standards for ecological integrity? Seems reasonable. It does seem reasonable, and I mean that most parties agreed that that's a good thing to do. If you're going to protect the lands, you should obviously be making sure that those are protected uh, properly. And and there's good international standards in terms of what that means. Um, And so we just want to make sure that they're going to they're going to actually adhere to those those best in class standards. Mm, Yeah. And next question is: Will you protect Canadians from pesticides, pollution, and toxics in everyday products by? modernizing the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. Yeah, that's an important one, too. It's Mm -hmm. one of the kind of key issues that we work on at Environmental Defense. I think most Canadians think that they're pretty well protected from from toxics, uh, but they're not actually, Mm -hmm. right? There's all kinds of pesticides, like glyphosate is the one, you know, that they're spraying uh, on crops all across Canada. Now we did uh, a test to look at you know, where is the stuff found? I mean, it's found in, in your breakfast cereal. It's found in, in breads. It's where we're consuming this pesticide that is, you know, known to be harmful to, to animals and to humans. 
it's it's quite problematic. And you know, we have other things like there's bisphenol A. We know we banned it out of bottles. Now you get a, a water plastic water bottle that says BPA free, right? Well, that BPA is actually in receipts. And so, oh, yeah. yeah, and so people that are especially cashiers yes. that are handling receipts all day are right. exposed to this chemical that we know yes. is an endocrine disruptor and causes problems. So we're trying to say, reform the laws uh, to put a higher test on to make sure that companies just can't put these, chem- these products containing chemicals onto the market. Because uh, we're exposing the fact that Canadians are exposed to these chemicals. It's getting into our blood. It's getting into our bodies. We need to have a, a real precautionary approach on that. And that means changing the laws to actually protect us properly. And would you say that, that in general the parties were favorable? Uh, yeah, some parties were favorable. They've said they would reform it. Now, mind you, they've committed to reforming that Canadian Environmental Protection Act before as well and mm. not followed through on it. So that's why we're kind of reiterating, will you make this commitment? And then yeah. we're going to hold their feet to the fire if, right. if parties get in that, that did make that commitment. Right. You know, I think the other thing that's really great about this survey is that you have put the survey together and that you have put it out there for people to go to because it solidifies... You know, I think a lot of people have questions of these natures. They don't know how to formulate it to a question. Right. And and maybe this gives people the opportunity to take this and go to their local candidates and, and go to their parties and, and their representatives and say, hey, what about this? Yeah, I mean, that would be great. And I think there's going to be, you know, we're going to be asking Canadians following the election to do exactly that. Mm-hmm. Go meet with that locally elected official. Go look at the survey. See what their party committed to. Go meet with them. Mm-hmm. Tell them these things matter to you. And that you want them to act on these things, absolutely, and that you're watching that, and, and you know, because they want to get reelected for sure, right? I mean, they probably they care about the environment. I think that most politicians today legitimately care. They want to do the right thing, but also they want to get reelected. Yeah. So if you're a constituent, you got to go to them and tell them right. you care. You expect them to follow through on their commitments, then yeah. they're going to care even more, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question, question eight: Given our plastic pollution and waste crisis. Will you work with other levels of government to implement a national strategy that includes a ban on the production, sale, and distribution of the most problematic and unnecessary single-use plastics and that works to create a circular economy focused on reuse? I mean, this is another issue like climate change that is not going away, right? We've woken up to the fact that our world is full of plastic, yeah. that, that you know over 90% of the plastic that's been made since the 50s, is still here on the planet today, right? I mean, it hasn't gone, it doesn't go anywhere. Mm. It doesn't, I mean, the great thing about plastic is that uh, it's it's very durable. The bad thing about plastic is it's very durable <laughs> and doesn't break down and yeah. it just accumulates in our environment. Yeah. And, you know, one one thing is that we only recycle 9% of the plastic we consume here in Canada. Mm. The mm. other uh, 91% goes into landfills, but it gets into the environment too, right? It's getting 10,000 tons end up in the Great Lakes every year. Uh, and there's, you know, so much plastic accumulating in the, in the oceans, too. And that's where these stories about whales washing up yeah. with bellies full of plastic. They're not going anywhere. And everywhere scientists look, the high Arctic, deep ocean trenches, uh, they find plastic. And yeah. now we know it's getting into us, too. So, yeah. you know, the Euro- European Union has committed to some pretty uh, good actions on plastic. A lot of countries around the world have banned plastic mm-hmm. bags and whatnot. Yep. Canada's made a commitment to address plastic and to work, you know, with other partners globally as well uh, to address that, particular with the focus on oceans. But we, we do need to do our part on that issue as, as well. So it's, And I know some, uh, some businesses in Canada have uh, started to take that and move forward, talking about, uh, I think, uh, by next year, some are going to be uh, abandoning the single-use plastic. Yeah, that's right. Sobe said they were yeah. going to ban plastic bags, and that's, yeah. that's really great. And we love to see that voluntary action from from companies, and, 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 and we would praise them for doing so. Uh, but ultimately, we really do need government to act on this because we need to make sure that the law is going to make sure that everybody takes this yeah. action, right? Voluntary is good, but it's insufficient. Mm-hmm. We really need to change. And I think this goes for all environmental issues, quite frankly, right? I mean, people talk about climate change, and they worry, you know, what can I do? And so they decide to drive their car less, or maybe they get an electric car, or, or they you know, want to insulate their home, or they're not going to fly, or they're not going to eat meat. And all those things are great to do. But we need government policy in place to make sure that everybody and that the businesses and the oil and gas industry also are reducing their emissions. Um, so that's really important. So right. love voluntary actions. Super happy that Sobe's made that commitment. Mm-hmm. But we need the government to follow. Yeah. Sobe showed that it's possible. Right. Now we need government to make sure that everybody does yeah. it. Yeah. And, you know, what you're talking about, uh, it's, it's plastic is showing up everywhere. Uh, I remember hearing some recent stories about microplastics and, 
and you you know you're talking yeah. about that it's crazy it keeps you know just it just keeps going and going and, and but the other thing is of course and you mentioned the story about about uh, uh whales with bellies full of plastic and they're eating the stuff but it also it's also dangerous in other ways the those plastic ring uh, things that get tossed and they get around the birds' necks, they get caught. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, yeah. hazards with this stuff. So yeah, yeah, we probably should find new. Absolutely, and should have been doing this a yeah. while ago. Well, well, and and I, the thing is, in Canada, and like much of the world, a company can produce a plastic item that is not recyclable. Mm. They can sell it to mm. you. You go to the store, you buy this thing, yep. and then you're home with it, and you're like, and you look now, you're looking at it. Where, does it say it's recyclable? What yep. should I do yep. with it? Maybe you put it in the blue box. Now you know that, though, because now you, we've heard that a lot of the stuff that goes in the blue bin still doesn't yeah. get recycled. Right. So what? Now you're feeling guilty. Maybe you're angry with your municipality. It's not your fault, and it's not even the municipality's fault. It's that company's fault who made that thing that never was going to be recycled. You got to change right. those laws yeah. to say you can't do that. You right. can't put that response. You can't create that thing, and also yeah. then. Transfer that responsibility to me or right. to my government. Right. No, it's the company that made that thing, yeah. and they made money from making that thing. Exactly. That needs to be held accountable. Yeah, I, I think that that is absolutely correct. We should be doing those kind of things to prevent that. It, it's just, it's responsible business. Yeah. It's yeah. just being responsible. Good citizen, corporate citizen. Now, number nine, will you create a federal environmental bill of rights that formally recognizes the legal rights of healthy of a healthy environment? This is another important one, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have uh, a lot of rights. Uh, uh, We've got a charter of rights and freedoms here in Canada, but the right to a healthy environment is not one of those rights. And what this is important, you know, as a tool for citizens to, you know, go to government and say, I have a right to this. And Mm -hmm. and they could use it as a legal challenge. And in the States, you know, there's some kids who are suing the federal government down there because they are, have been, are not, are not able to, have their right to, uh, I forget what the American one is, but it's, you know, liberty and uh, whatever. Anyway, they're Mm. saying, you know, our inalienable rights Mm. that are given to Americans, we can't, we're not able to get those rights because you've damaged the environment. And I think Canadians should be feeling that too, that we actually have a right. And if we put that into into law, then, then citizens have the ability to hold their government to account for protecting the environment because it impacts us and, and the ability of future generations right. to enjoy a prosperous and healthy life, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's the, it's the, the um, right. I think it's the pursuit of happiness, or I forget mm-hmm. which it is that yeah. the, in, in the States they're saying these inalienable rights, we can't access yeah. them because right. of, of the way that the environment right. is being handled and the way that climate change is going to impact our ability to just live, mm-hmm. you know, in 2050. In a safe, stable world. Yeah, uh, we're down to the last question, and that's good because we're we're quickly running out of time. But it's been great having you here. And this last question, I think, really uh, really brings everything together. And the reason I say that is because we're talking about going green. We, you know, everyone talking about going green and making the the world and the environment a better place, a safe place for us all to live. And it, this last question deals with uh, indigenous people, and the indigenous people of this planet have been living on the world. <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot longer than North America has been here. Yeah. And they lived in a way that was very green. It, it was in harmony with, with the environment. They had a way of doing that. I think that more people should be looking to indigenous people and talking to more indigenous people about how, uh, how to have that way of life that we can uh, hopefully strive to achieve someday. But the last question, will you uphold the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the Protection of Indigenous and Treaty Rights? Yeah, I mean, that's really important. I was, we were saying, you know, you can't really talk about resource development and pipelines and these kind of things in Canada without talking also about Indigenous peoples mm. and Indigenous issues. And, you know, the duty to consult that the federal mm. government has right now and, you know, what the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is saying also is that Indigenous people need to have free, prior, and informed consent. And, and that's really important, right? If a resource project is going to be on indigenous, you know, uh, territory, whether that's in a treaty or it's unceded or whatever. I mean, people that have uh, th- that live there and have lived there for a long time should have the right to say, yay or nay, to those projects. And I think what's being, you know, debated is, you know, does that mean a veto? Uh, I think that you know, if you were to be honest about the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of, of Indigenous Peoples, you would say yes. I mean, it's. And this is the problem is like right now we're talking about consultation and that's important. Sure. 
But it's not just I went and told you or asked you, can I do this? And you said no, and I went ahead anyway. I mean, free prior and informed consent means you could say no. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. So, I mean, a lot of parties have said they would respect uh, that, that, that treaty. Uh, and I think that's really important. I mean, it's, it's on, certainly a necessary condition for even beginning to have a, a real conversation about reconciliation. Mm. Right. Keith, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk with us and share this survey and share your thoughts on, uh, on these very important issues that uh, we're facing well, it was my pleasure, and, and I encourage people to come to environmentaldefense.ca, check out the survey, and also get out and vote, and vote in favor of the environment. It's so, so important during this election. The environment and our future really is at stake. All right. Keith Brooks is the Program Director at Environmental Defense in Toronto, and he was our guest on this second half of the show. It's been a pleasure having him in here. My name's David Moses. I'm your host of Moment of Truth here on Element FM and you're listening in Toronto and Ottawa. I want to thank you for listening, and make sure to tune in next time. Miawa, miigwech, and onigihia.